Good morning. It's a pleasure to be back again on this Christmas Eve Sunday. The title of our message today is Our Salvation is Only as Certain as Christmas. For those who are following and uh, keeping track of the key word today, that word will be promise. So if you want to make a tally mark whenever you hear that word, that will help you maybe focus and pay attention to the message. Our key passage today is in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5 where we read, But when the fullness of time, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. When I was uh, studying at the university, Wright State University, long, long time ago now, uh, I took a course in basic philosophy. And we studied many of the different, you know, Greeks and other uh, original philosophers and right up into the present. And one of the interesting things that happens when you take a philosophy course is you start to kind of come up with uh, questions uh, that are kind of like bull session questions a bunch of, uh, among a bunch of sophomore students, you know. And uh, one of those was this question. What would happen if an irresistible force collided head-on with an immovable object. So think about that. What would happen if the force is truly irresistible and the object is truly immovable and these two collided head-on? What would happen? Well, in a very real sense, the answer is found in the Gospel. We read in Romans chapter 3 in verses 21 through 26 an extended passage here, but in this we see the collision that occurred. We read here, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now here's the collision, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate the righteousness, his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Think of all of the patriarchs, the story of David, you know, all the different ways in which men and women of God in the Old Testament had sinned, and yet they were not immediately condemned and destroyed. God passed over those sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time 
his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What we see in this passage is that Satan, in his tempting, his successful temptation of Adam and Eve, had placed God between what we could call a rock and a hard place. How could God be just? He had to be absolutely just. He could not overlook sin. He must respond as the judge of the whole earth. And yet at the same time, God is love. God's mercy and kindness are without end. How can the justice of God be reconciled with the love and the compassion of God? An irresistible force and an immovable object are on a head-on collision and they come to a head at the cross where Jesus died for our sins, not his own, and made way for the Father to offer grace and mercy. And so we have the gospel as the story of how the irresistible force of God's love collided head-on with the immovable object of God's justice, and both were completely satisfied by our salvation. There was neither side walking away grumbling that it didn't get all that it wanted. Justice was completely satisfied, and love was entirely expressed. And the result is our salvation. And so Christmas is a part of God's gracious, loving response to the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Today we're going to be looking at Christmas in the part that it plays in God's plan of salvation and to see how the certainty of Christmas was the basis for the certainty of our salvation. And so we find in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 14 and 15, the Lord God said to the serpent, which is, uh, you could say, channeling Satan at this point, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The fulfillment of God's promise in this passage to send a deliverer to defeat Satan is the golden thread that runs through the entire of Scripture. We live today because of the connection between this promise and our salvation. In order to have a resurrection day, we must first have a Christmas day. And that's the connection. God's promise and his promised prophecy to Adam and Eve continued to be expanded over the centuries 
When we take inventory, and it, you know, we could go for weeks just looking at the promises and the prophecies concerning Christ. But we see, for instance, in God's word to Abraham, in Genesis 22 and verse 18, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so we have this narrowing down. When is this promised uh, offspring of the woman going to arrive? The one that the Jews would refer to as the Messiah. When is he coming? How is he coming? And the first focusing we see is in Abraham's promise from God that it is in him that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And then through Jacob to the 12 patriarchs, we see in Genesis 49 in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And Shiloh is a reference to the Messiah. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so we now narrow it down from not just the Jews and the, and the children of Abraham, but now we know it's the tribe of Judah that is going to be the one through whom this offspring of the woman will appear. And then we see through Moses speaking to Israel in Deuteronomy verse eight, chapter 18 and verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And so we have another promise that someone's coming who's going to be the savior that is needed. So each of these prophecies built upon all the others in order to explain how the seed of the woman will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And God provided many more details over time. Very, very precise, specific details. For example, in Isaiah 7, verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That is impossible, and yet that is the promise of God through Isaiah. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. And then again in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is no ordinary child. This is God the Son. And then again we read in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And so we have these signs, these prophecies, all of which are going to fall into place as the approaching day arrives when God sends his son into this world in the incarnation. By the time Christmas actually came, 
there were many signs to be observed. And God fulfilled all of these promises and these prophecies by the birth of Jesus Christ. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul makes this connection. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. God is sending his son into the world. He is the offspring of the woman, not of the woman and the man, but of the woman. He is the son of God. And as this offspring of the woman arrives, we also have the arrival of the seed, singular, of Abraham, who is the promised Messiah. Now, Galatians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5, Paul continues to elaborate here. But when the fullness of time came, this phrase is uh, used often in several places. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's the Mosaic law in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So here we have the plan of God's salvation, promised in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, where God pronounces his judgment upon the serpent that his head will be crushed by the offspring of the woman. The Christmas story began long before Adam and Eve ever sinned in the Garden of Eden. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, the second part, it says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So how does that work? I thought it would be appropriate for to try to begin the Christmas story where it actually begins, and that is in the days of eternity. The story actually began before the creation of the world itself. How does that work? Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, that's in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, here's the word, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. When God predestines something, it is established by his sovereign decree, and it will happen. And it is something that God himself sovereignly chooses to do, as we see, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And that beloved is Jesus Christ and all who would come to God through Jesus Christ. We also are among the beloved. 
So the Christmas story began when God chose each one of us individually to be saved by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. That is mind-boggling. But that's the beginning of the Christmas story. The names of all who would ever be saved were written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. And we see in Revelation chapter 13 in verses 5 through 10, and the beast was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's a long, complicated sentence, but let me just paraphrase for a moment. Everyone in this world will worship this beast, this, this empire in the last days. The only ones who will not worship this this beast will be those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. What we have in this passage is a practical window into what it means for things to be predestined. And so we see there are things that are going to happen by God's righteous decree from all eternity, and they will happen at particular points in time and space. All of these decrees will be fulfilled. And so this is the doctrine of predestination. Our salvation became certain as soon as Jesus, the Lamb of God, as as John said, when he pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus agreed with his heavenly Father to be born into this world as the promised offspring and seed of the woman, our salvation was set on course. The collision was predestined to take place. It was God's decision to redeem a people for his own glory that made Christmas necessary. We sometimes lose sight of that with all of our Christmas celebration and our our gifts and our decorations. But the whole point of this is God has chosen to redeem a people for his own glory. And that has made Christmas necessary. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul writes, In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, those are our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. You know, when you lavish something, it's like you, it's, more than you need. It's just, you're spread, it's like the way I put butter on a biscuit. I lavish that biscuit with butter. Well, God has lavished upon us 
uh, the riches of his grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. This is the revelation of his will. Many times we read that word mystery as though it means we still don't know what it is. But in the Bible, the word mystery is used to say, this used to be unknown, but now God has revealed it to us. And so this mystery of his will has been revealed according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now notice this, as a plan for the, full, for the fullness of time. He has a plan for the fullness of time. What is that plan? A collision between an, a, a, a movable object and an irresistible force. And in the fullness of time, that collision will take place to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And so, when Jesus was conceived as a baby in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the irresistible force of God's love was set on a direct path to collide head on with the immovable object of God's justice at the cross. It's coming. Our salvation became at that moment as certain as Christmas. We are saved by grace through faith and all of that is ours because Jesus Christ was born incarnated into human flesh. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11 through 14 Notice again these words. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of, whom, of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means he always gets his way. Okay? He always accomplishes his purpose. And so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. That's why we are here for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Our salvation is secure. We have no need to fear of losing what God has started in us. He has started something in us. He will complete it in us. We have no need to fear being lost if we have been found. You know, so many times people have a false assurance. Uh, they, they trust in an emotional experience. But the question is, have you been born again? Have you received this Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance and our possession of salvation? Do you see evidence in your life of the grace of God that transforms a human life, that gives us a new heart, allows us to have this new spirit, and causes us to walk in the will of God without coercion? because we have a heart that desires to please God. If you think of your heart as being your wanter, it's the thing in you that wants and wants and wants. And before you were born again, what you want 
is the pleasures that come from sin. What you want is to get away with things rather than do what's right. You want to get away with doing what's wrong. That's your wanter. And you need a new wanter. You need a new heart that wants to please God. Now you say, well, if I have that new heart, will I always please God? No, you won't. And that is clear in the Bible. But you will always want to. And your wanter will progressively take you closer and closer to God's purpose in your life. You will be progressively sanctified, to use the theological term. And so we see in this passage in Ephesians chapter 1 that God has predestined those that he's called and chosen to be saved, and they will be saved to the praise of his glory. They will receive the Holy Spirit, who will be the seal and the guarantee of their salvation. But we must be careful not to presume that just because we were born into a Christian family that we have these things. As you've heard me say before, God has no grandchildren. Only children. You either come to God by faith in Christ and uh, and become a child of God, or you are lost, even though you live in a family in which everyone else in your family is a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. You must be born again yourself in order to enjoy the benefits of Christmas. And I'm not talking about Christmas presents. I'm talking about the benefits of having a Savior who has been born into this world specifically to die for your sins. Our salvation has only ever been as certain as Christmas. Because without Christmas, without the incarnation of Jesus, there would have been no Messiah, no death, no burial, no resurrection by which to make our salvation possible. Without Christmas, there could be no resurrection Sunday. And so we have the Christmas story. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 1 we read, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place when Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Do you hear all the prophecies being fulfilled? The virgin will conceive. The birth will take place in Bethlehem. All of these things are coming to pass. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, for the child to be born. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly 
host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had, heard, had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And so, in closing, what does happen when an irresistible force collides head-on with an immovable object? What happens? Well, the answer can be found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the great commission to take the gospel to the world. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation, the gospel. One of the possibilities that we came up with in, in college when we were talking about this, this uh, question of what would happen if an irresistible force collided head-on with an immovable object. And one of the possibilities that it would change everything that it would entirely reset all the laws of physics, that, that it would create a chain reaction that would reverberate throughout the universe. And I believe that is the correct answer. Christmas changed everything. The cross changed everything. The resurrection changed everything. And now we are new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so in closing, I plead with you again. Examine yourselves. This is Paul's command. This is God's command to us. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Don't deceive yourself. Don't play, <clears throat> play games. Paul says, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. How would you test yourself? What, what kind of evidence of God's grace would you look for 
to know that you truly have a faith that saves your soul. Well, let me offer you a few questions to meditate on, both now, immediately, but also for the rest of this week. Let me ask you these questions. How often do you pray and talk to God when you are all alone and there's no one else around? I'm not talking about praying over a meal or the gathering of a family or friends. I'm not talking about praying in a Bible study. I'm not pray, talking about praying in church when we gather in a circle to pray. I'm saying when you are all alone and there's no one else around and no one is going to see and no one else is going to know what you're doing, do you talk to God? Because if you do, that is evidence that you believe that God is there and that your religion is not just for show so that others will see. Let me ask you another question. How often do you obey God and do something that you know is pleasing to Him just because you believe it would be pleasing to Him and nobody else is around to see it? No one will ever know. And it's something that costs you something. Something that was inconvenient. And nobody else will never know, ever know about it, but you and God will know about it. And you do it only because you believe God is there and that he would be pleased. How often does that happen? Because if it never happens, it raises the possibility that God is not real to you. That you are not concerned with pleasing him. It's a scary thing, isn't it? To have a religion that only serves your temporal interests in this world and has nothing to do with your eternal salvation. And I'll tell you right now that a huge percentage of those who profess to be Christians are not believers in Jesus Christ. They are believers in the benefits of going to church. They are believers in the benefits of seeming to be a Christian to others. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Do you not know in yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? So look closely to see if Christ is in you by his spirit. Look for evidence of God's grace in your life. A love for God, a thirst for God, a desire to, to know him more, to please him. Look for evidence. And in Galatians chapter 4, our opening key passage today, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. I want you to rejoice in this Christmas holiday as the day that God set in motion his wonderful plan to fulfill his promises to defeat Satan and sin and death through Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness. I ask, Lord, that this Christmas Eve message would be more than just a holiday message, but a 
a deep and, and thorough and, and heavy serving of sound doctrine. That we might be changed by believing the truth of this gospel, this good news. And Lord, I pray there will be conversations between parents and their children, between grandparents and their grandchildren, and that throughout this time, Lord, between husband and wife, conversations would be held that would result in eternal salvation by faith in this one who was sent into the world to save us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.